When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I can, could with stories from my life and others. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take the issues of the day and do my best to answer them. Today we're looking at the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, or Baal, and their showdown on Mount Carmel. As I noted in the text, um, Mount Carmel is shaped like a caramel. It's always a lot of fun to think about that. I've been there at least once, maybe twice in my short life. And today we're answering the question, how do I not have two things I want? How do I do that? How do I want only the good thing? I want a lot of things. The good thing, the bad thing, everything. How do I get down to just one thing? The good thing. And this is the story that comes down to us. This very dramatic tale, maybe the one of the most dramatic moments in all the Bible, the showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the lone prophet of Yahweh. After uh, 9-11, there's been a lot of videos and speculation about uh, and conspiracy theories about what happened on that day. And I don't believe any of them, but one of the big questions they ask is, could jet fuel melt the steel in those towers? And um, sort of that's become a meme in many ways, a, a shorthand for, you know, you can't really trust anybody um, anymore. And yet in this story, you have a um, fire from heaven melting stone, liquefying stone, consuming stone. Uh, The stone altar that Elijah builds, the water, the ox, everything is consumed by this fire, including the stones. Um, And I think of that kind of heat. Uh, It's kind of like electricity. They always say that um, the way to avoid being struck by lightning, there's several different things you can do, which are always very confusing to me. Uh, one of them is to uh, don't go to a low-lying area, they say. And then they say, don't go to a hill either. Uh, get some shelter, but don't stand under a tree. Um, these are the, the conundrums of not being struck by lightning. Best thing to do is to get inside your car. The best thing to do is uh, don't, don't, uh, best thing to do is get in your car um, or get in your house or get in a building. Um, but, I remember one science teacher telling us, and I don't know, I was probably in high school and going through all this and said, but if the charge is powerful enough, anything can become a conductor. Anything, rubber, wood, anything you don't think will conduct electricity will if the charge is strong enough. And we live in our world of normal electricity, normal lightning, And here in this story, we see a kind of fury from God that we don't really see in any other story, or at least I don't see in any other story. Ahab, the king, the wicked king of Israel, 
assembles these prophets of Baal. I don't think most of them really wanted to do this. It says that Ahab made them do it. Go out to this mountain. Mount Carmel, as I said yesterday, was is shaped like a caramel, caramel. It's like a square kind of mountain. There's a flat top and it's steep sides. And there on Mount Carmel is where Elijah had this showdown. High places are always places of negotiation with the gods and goddesses of the world. The high places. Um, even today, um, The Onion had an article many years ago that said, area tourists enjoy going to the tops of things. Um, you know, that's pretty much what you do when you go to a new place. You try to find the highest point and go to it. It's some tower or mountain or even in our recreational activities, we want to go sort of to the highest point. We want to hike up something. Um, this is something, there's something in us that knows that there's something up there, uh, something that we can't really find anywhere else. In fact, from a high place, you can kind of see the world the way God sees the world from up above. This is why Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, to the pinnacle of the temple, to survey all the kingdoms of the world. Um, this is where God sits. The gods of Greece and Rome and before that sit on Mount Olympus. Um, and perhaps Baal, this god of the Canaanites, uh, has, has his own mountains. And maybe Mount Carmel is one of them. doesn't say in the text. But Elijah says to the people, he's, not, he's talking to all the people of Israel, all of them. Every single one of them, because he knows they're going to hear this story one way or the other, even if they're not there. How long will you go limping with two, between two opinions? Uh, how long will you falter between two opinions? The word is stumble, to falter, to limp, to, to trip between two opinions. And that's what we do. Uh, we all want two things at once. Most of us do. We want something good. We know that it's good for us. It may be a little difficult, but it's good for us. And we want the opposite at the same time. Um, in Islamic thought, there's a saying um, about marriage. Marriage is like a castle. Everyone on the outside is trying to break in. And everybody on the inside is trying to break out. <laughs> That's a little realistic words in that uh, some, you know, sometimes we're just not happy in the state we're in. We say, I like this, I want this, but I also want something else. Um, in the book of James, that's called being double-minded, to want something good and then to want something else. And we all kind of do this with pretty much everything in our life, even our relationship with God. We want to have a good relationship with God, but we also want to be able to ignore it when it's convenient. We want to be able to do our own thing. And the people of Israel are in the same position. They want the benefits that Baal gives them, but they also want to be faithful to the covenant that they made with God a long time ago and their forefathers made with God. And this is what they keep stumbling between. They're like a person who's perpetually drunk, perpetually stumbling, perpetually unable to keep their balance. And this is unsteady. Uh, James writes, the double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. So being double-minded in one area of life means that you're probably going to be double-minded in others. Uh, Kierkegaard writes his famous book, Purity of Heart, about this writing in James and the story in Elijah, where he says that 
it, everybody wants two things. We want something good and something bad for us. Um, we kind of want them at the same time. And as long as we want both things, we'll always um, stumble. So purity of heart, what we call purity of heart, that which God calls us to in relationship with God, is really to just want one thing. And if we whittle it down and say, what do I really want? What is that one thing I want in life? We'll always choose the best thing. We'll always choose God's thing. We'll always choose the one that is good for us. Because when we have to choose between something that's not good for us and something that's good for us, we'll always pick the thing that's good for us. And really, we don't need to always figure out which one we're going to choose that day. To only choose one thing. To say, I have a limited time on this planet. And I'm going to try to pick the best thing for me every single time that God wants me to pick. And that is the way Kierkegaard tries to help us not be so double-minded. And Elijah tries to help his people not be so double-minded. How long will you go back to these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is the God, then follow him. Pick one or the other. This is the moment of truth. You can't have both. You got to pick one or the other. And the people don't say a word. They know. They know what they're doing. They know that they are double-minded. There's, they, they don't need any convincing. They, they've been supporting these hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal in the king's house for many, many, many months or years now. It's been years. And Elijah says to them, okay, I'm the last prophet left. He's actually not the last prophet left, but he says that. Elijah like is melodramatic. He's a drama llama, drama queen. He's, he's everything. He's, he's very dramatic. And he says, I'm the only one left. He says this several times in his story even though we know that he's not the only one left. And he knows this. He just met Obadiah, who's got 50 prophets in two caves. He's got 100 prophets being hidden. But he says, I'm the only one left, and there's 450 of you. Give us two bulls. We'll put one on one altar, one on the other. And uh, so the prophets of Baal dance around the altar. They cut themselves with lances, it says, with, with spears, with swords, with knives. They're bleeding trying to get God's attention. They're trying to say, by my own sacrifice, I can get God to notice me and to act on my behalf. Um, And Elijah mocks them. In the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, which we generally read from in the Episcopal Church, it's when Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal, he says, maybe your God's out meditating. Maybe he, uh, maybe you should cry a little louder so he can hear you. Maybe he wandered away. You know, he went out for lunch and he's not there in the office. Maybe he went on a journey. Maybe he's on vacation, you know, and you don't know. He's not there in heaven. Uh, maybe he's asleep and you have to wake him up. Be louder. You're, you're, you're not loud enough. You're not cutting yourself enough. <laughs> I don't know. He mocks them. And uh, some translators translate that first one. Maybe he's meditating. Is Maybe he's taking a dump. Um, it is a very ambiguous Hebrew word. Um, we don't really know what it means and what it means in this context, but I don't think it means meditating. I think it means he's out using the restroom, which it can mean as much as it means meditating, which uh, for some people is not that different. Um, and so Elijah mocks them. And this is the mocking of, of the underdog. This is not some powerful figure mocking people that he has power over. This is the lone prophet out there on the hill. All the king's soldiers are there. 
The king is there. The prophets of Baal are there. Everybody's there on only one side. And Elijah is the only one on Yahweh's side. And so after they, they're done, Elijah says, come closer to me. Elijah invites the people closer. He's not talking to the prophets of Baal. He's talking to his people. And he's inviting them closer. Whenever we offer people, like, choose this day. You need to choose this day, whether it's one of our kids or somebody else in a relationship or whatever. You need to choose what you're doing this day. We want to also remember that we are inviting people closer when we do that. We want, to, we want people to come closer to us. The art of life is to how to stay emotionally regulated, how to stay far enough distanced emotionally from other people's feelings that we don't get caught up in their, whatever they're doing, so that we compromise what we believe in that. Or uh, we want to be able to be self-differentiated, if you want to use Friedman's terms, to say like, this is me and that's you. And I know we we have some disagreement on this, but I'm not going to get caught up in what you're doing. And But the other part of this is to maintain a connection in times like this, to say, I know what I'm about. I know I'm here to serve the one true God, but I'm also going to stay connected to you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be in this relationship with you, even though we have this thing between us. And Elijah's doing this. He's saying, I know some of you are going to choose Baal. Some of you might, but I want you to come closer anyway. I want to invite you to this altar, invite you to this table. Even as the church in this Eucharistic age, as we invite people into communion, we want to say, this is who we are. We believe we are spiritually participating in the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ, that he is present here in the Eucharist. So come to this altar. But this is what we're doing here. We are not you know, just having a sentimental ritual meal. We are actually it becoming part of Jesus' body and part of his blood. This is a big deal for us, and we want you to come closer into that. That is what we want to do as a church, is invite people into that mystical communion with Jesus. And so Elijah invites them in. And then he prays. He says, I'm your servant. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And God, I want you to answer me. If you want these people back, you've got to answer me. Elijah calls God's bluff. He speaks directly to God in his own voice. He speaks exactly what he needs to say to God. Answer me, he says. Don't leave me hanging. And that is our prayer to God too. Don't leave me hanging. I've trusted you. I've been there. I've tried to do everything you've asked me to do. Like, come through for me on this level, please, God. And this is prayer. This is the kind of prayer Jesus taught us to pray. This is the kind of prayer Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the kind of prayer Jesus prayed out in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, away from his disciples. It's this kind of prayer. I've done what you've asked me to do. I'm your servant. Now I need you to come through for me. I need you to answer me. And God does. And this fire consumes everything. The stones, it says, even the dust. It burns the water. It takes everything. This is God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, an all-consuming fire. And then, Elijah says to everybody that has now changed sides, they are back on Yahweh's side. He says, get rid of the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them escape. And they killed them right there. 
There's a statue on Mount Carmel today of Elijah with a sword, and he's killing the prophets of Baal. Um, It's hard for us to put this into a modern context. Um, Through the light and life of Jesus Christ, we do not kill our enemies who disagree with us about worship style. (laughs) We don't do that. Um, And at the same time, we take very seriously the worship of the one true God. And this is what the stories are telling us, that God is an all-consuming fire. And uh, maybe we don't see this in our um, post-it note Christianity or our embroidered Christianity or a bumper sticker Christianity, but we see it in stories like this, where we say, um, we say, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so wishy-washy all the time. Maybe I shouldn't be so back and forth. Maybe I need to say, I want to, I want to only want one thing in life. God, give me that one thing that I need. That's what I want to do with my life. And Elijah calls us to that. Don't halt between two opinions. Choose God every time. God is a consuming fire, and he will come through for you. He will answer you in the time of trouble. Amen. Andrew Crummel was not born into enslavement, but his grandparents were. His parents had um, escaped, and he grew up in New York in a very active abolitionist community of freed people in New York. And so from an early age, he knew that uh, his calling was to be with his people. Um, His parents instilled in him this idea that he was part of a larger heritage of African heritage, which something that had been erased, stamped out, um, expunged, Uh, from the collective memory by white Americans and by the the slavery industrial complex, really. And yet uh, Alexander Crummel knew from a very early age that this was part of his heritage. And so his whole life is sort of a quest to find that heritage um, again. He is, um, as a young man, he tries to enroll at General Theological Seminary, the Episcopal Church Seminary in New York City, and is denied because he is black. Um, Even though the North in the 1830s and 40s is a lot more uh, abolitionist than the South is, it is still a place where a lot of people believe that slavery is okay, or at least not as bad as everybody says it is, even in the 1840s, even in the 1850s. In the 1860s, when secession happens and the Southern states break from the United States, over slavery, New York City, the mayor of New York City petitions for secession as well um, because he does not want New York City to be cut off from the resources of the South. So there are plenty of secessionists in the North before the Civil War and during the Civil War. Plenty of people that support slavery, especially in places like New York City, where they are getting great benefit from the slavery industrial complex that's functioning all over the South. So Alexander Crummel um, is rejected from attending um, this seminary. He then goes to Massachusetts further north where he finds greener pastures for his ordination process. He is ordained in the Episcopal Church. Um, And one of my friends who preached on his life a couple years ago said, um, Alexander Crummel was a good thing for the Episcopal Church. 
But the Episcopal Church was not a good thing for Alexander Crummel. And that is probably a fairly good assessment of his interactions with our church. He went to Philadelphia, um, where he uh, asked to lead a black congregation um, there, and he was rejected by the bishop. Well, the bishop said, you can do it, but you can never, ever come to any diocesan councils and sit in them as a black priest and vote, and your congregation can never be part of our councils of the church. So he said, no, thanks. I'm not interested in that. Um, And it was around this time where he goes to Liberia. His belief was that, um, that only in Liberia, in places like Africa, um, can formerly enslaved people from America really thrive. He also believed that um, there would be a good effect on Africa from Christian former enslaved people going back to Africa. This was a theory that was very prominent at the time, that America would never, ever, ever accept black people into their society. And so the only solution was to go back to Liberia. He goes to England and raises money for this. He travels around preaching about abolition, um, part of this movement, and developed what is now called Pan-Africanism, that African people share an identity that um, needs to, to flourish in order to survive in the racist climate of the pre-Civil War America. Um, and it, it is, um, it is this, this, um, be- this belief and this way of looking at the world that um, becomes a gift to generations of students as he eventually moves to Washington, D.C., um, start, he f- is a church planter, found St. Luke's Episcopal Church, um, the first independent black church in the city of Washington. Washington. Um, it's there on 15th Street in Northwest in, Colum- in the Columbia Heights neighborhood where yours truly used to live for a little while um, while he was in the army. He um, stayed there till his retirement. He taught at Howard University, and that's where these ideas of Pan-Africanism get out into the world. Um, and so he has... He has been uh, venerated in our church for many years. Um, he wrote a lot, which uh, really timely, good things. But really what his life shows as a parable, both the rejection of the Episcopal Church of black leaders and also the eventual acceptance of them. Um, and it is a reluctant acceptance. And this is part of our heritage as an Episcopal Church to reckon with the racism that is baked into our culture but also to recognize that it was prophetic uh, people like Alexander Crummel who broke open uh, the 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 broke through the veil of of racism and indifference that white Episcopalians kept uh, burning for so long. So we thank God for His life, for His witness, and for His example. And we want to be a church where the next generation of Alexander Crummels, when they come along, and they already are along, um, are embraced and held in leadership and uh, accepted for their gifts and abilities. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for your servant, Alexander Crummel, whom you called to preach the gospel to those who were far off and those who were near. Raise up in this and every land evangelists and heralds of your kingdom that your church may proclaim the unsearchable riches of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.